immediately give an apology for it. These are heavy passages. Biblical reference that most of us don't know piled upon biblical reference. Metaphor put upon metaphor, idea upon idea, and it wanders from one place to another quite quickly. Now, what it is, of course, is a very fine piece of first century Jewish Christian thinking. This is how the rabbis wrote. And any first century person would have followed this argument and gone, my goodness, that's interesting. But unfortunately, well, some of us are older, but I don't think we have any really first century people here. And so most of us, we sort of get the high points, but there's a lot in there that we wish they would just leave out because we don't really understand it. Or in some cases, and we'll talk about one of those, things we don't really like hearing about because it's just not something that we talk about. So this turns into quite a heavy, puzzling piece of biblical literature, not what it was meant to be at all. So with that in mind, I'm going to now tell you that this morning, I'm not going to work my way through that verse by verse and explain everything to you. Some of the mystery will remain. And so with that, you can all just breathe a great sigh of relief. Thank goodness. And we don't have to go home with sore heads. Rather, I'm simply going to pick the main theme, which is actually a very clear one and a very simple one. Now, before we get to that, first I would talk a bit about Ephesians. We do not know exactly who wrote it. It's a Pauline letter, but by the language, some of the imagery, we know it's probably not Paul. It's one of his disciples. Now, that today would be frowned upon by every university community in the world. You don't do that. You don't put your name on somebody else's work or you put somebody else's name on your work. But in the ancient world, this is the way you said, this is my teacher. You know, I am writing a letter from Paul because Paul was my teacher and I want to show you what he would say about this situation. So you draw upon Paul and write a letter. Second thing we're not sure about is exactly to whom this letter was first sent. And Epheso, which are the two Greek words meaning in Ephesus, is not in the earliest manuscripts. And what that means probably, and this again was a common thing, this was a letter written to sort of the whole church. And what they would do, now this is before search and replace on the computer, as they wrote a new copy of this letter, they'd simply put in the name of the church that this particular copy was going to. And the ones we have found are the ones that were going to the church in Ephesus. But the problem the problem they were talking about was throughout the early Christian community. There were two kinds of followers of Jesus. There were Jews who followed Jesus, and there were not Jews, Gentiles, what they call in the passage the uncircumcised. They followed Jesus, and they would get together, and as all good communities, they would immediately fight. And because on the one hand, we had the Jewish people saying, well, look at if you want to come into this community, I mean, you know, Jesus was Jewish, so we expect circumcision. And we expect you not to eat pork. In fact, you shouldn't be eating really any meat because most of the meat you buy out there in the market has come from the temples of the various gods around us, and that's bad meat. So don't eat that either. And then they would go on and on about Sunday observances and all the other things. And if you do all those things, then you can be part of the Christian community. Meanwhile, the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, were saying, no, 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 no. We're saved by what Jesus said, by the faith he had. He's welcomed everybody. We're an inclusive community. We, we, we show hospitality to all those. That's who we are. And this debate was going on, and it was giving the early church a real identity crisis. 
is I think in the middle we had a lot of people who sort of saw the reasoning of the other side and were being good about it, but then on the fringes, I was going to point back there, but you're not really on the fringes, but on the outside there were people who were really angry about this. And this, by the way, came to a head probably about 20 years after this was written when the Christians were actually thrown out of the synagogues. They said, you know, we got to make a break here and you can no longer come here on Sunday if you're connected with Christ. And that's it. There's no, uh, there's no second thoughts on that one. So the writer writes to this particular problem and says, fundamentally, he takes a long while, get over it. That's what he says. He writes first to the Gentiles. You who were at that time, in the, in the before time, separate from Christ, excluded from the community of Israel, strangers to God's covenant and the promise that goes with them, yours was a world without hope and without God. But now, now, in union with Christ Jesus, you have been brought near through the shedding of Christ's blood. Okay, there's the, pro- there's the problem solved. We're all one. We're one community. There are no adjectives needed to be put in to describe what kind of Christians we are. We're just Christians through the shedding of Christ's blood. Now, this brings us to a topic that usually in biblical discussions we shy away from, and that is the meaning of blood, not only here but throughout the New Testament and indeed in Hebrew Scripture as well. What is this symbolism? What is this? What do they really mean? Well, in short, the first century Jewish community had a very practical view of what made people alive and what made people dead. And they had learned this from looking at alive people and dead people. And what's the difference? Two things. First, breath. The ancient world was fascinated by the fact that things moved. Why do things move? Why isn't the world just frozen? Movement shows that there's something there. There's something makes things move. This is the idea of the spirit, wind. Spirit and wind, remember, are the same words in both Greek and Hebrew. Same words. There's something magical about something that actually causes animation. And they knew that live people breathe. That's the first thing we've got. We've got a spirit in us that, that somehow sustains us. And when the spirit goes out of us, when we stop breathing, we're no longer alive. Second one, second thing that makes us alive, makes us human, is this strange entity of blood. Now, they did not know about oxygen transfer or enzymes or T-cells or hemoglobin or any of that. But they knew that if you cut your arm and all the blood runs out, so does your life. And blood to the Jewish people was sacred. Because obviously it's a gift of God somehow within the human body that that captures the spirit or is enlivened by the spirit or is activated by the spirit and it's what allows us to do all the things we do. We need blood. Jewish people, by the way, were the only ones in the ancient world who had a law forbidding people to eat blood. This is why Jewish meat has to be killed in a certain way. So as much blood as possible is taken away from it. All other cultures, blood was just part of the meat and that's the way you did things. Jewish people said no. We don't understand it fully, but there's something here that's very special and very sacred. When animals were slaughtered, if you remember, the blood ran off the altar and it was saved because the blood belonged to God. The blood was a gift from God. When you wanted to make something pure, uh, priest clothing, for example, they were sprinkled 
with blood. Now, again, to us, that's sort of a yuck moment from Scripture, but that's blood was special. It, was, it had some sort of power in it. They didn't know what the power was, but obviously it could make something a very unique thing. So when they talked about shedding blood, basically it meant shedding life, or if you gave blood to God, you were, you were giving an offering, you were giving a gift. So understanding that mentality in the passage was written in, let's go back to the passage. Once you were far off, but now in union with Christ Jesus, you have been brought near. That's, by the way, a technical phrase, brought near. If a Gentile person became a Jew, then they were said to be brought near to God. So you have been brought near, not by circumcision, no, not by not eating pork, no, not by any of the other laws, no. You have been brought near to God. You've been made part of God's community. Gentiles and Jews, he, that is Christ, has made the two one, and in his own body of flesh and blood has broken down the barrier of enmity which separated them. For he annulled the law with its rules and regulations. So get over the law bit. So as to create out of two a single new humanity in himself, therefore making peace. This is the part I can feel you said. He promised he wouldn't make this hard, but that's what the writer wrote. Now, when we hear this kind of language, most of us, when we hear that we're in union with Christ and in his own body of flesh and blood, then we think that's, that's metaphor, isn't it? You know, we're, it's, it's like we're one body. We love talking about the church as the body of Christ. It's, it's a wonderful image. For Jewish Christians especially, and for most Christians at the time, it's far, far more intimate and deep and powerful than that. We're not talking just a metaphor. Here's a pretty picture of what it might be like to be a Christian. No, they were talking, in a sense, literally. This was Jewish meditation. Now, when we think of meditation, most of us have been trained to think of Buddhists or Hindus, you know, Om, Hanmani, Habadme, Om, you know, they were doing that kind of thing. And we don't connect this directly with the Jewish community. The Jewish people, for them, meditation was reading the Torah, reading the Bible. Why did they do that? They did it so that they could feel that all these external rules, all the, all the things talked about when God was talked about, would be part of who they were. They would actually become part of their being. I am a part of God's work in the world. So it's a much more practical meaning. The reason the Sabbath was set aside is so people could get it back out of the secular world or the world of everyday life and move into a world where God was the center and where they could sense that presence in their own lives. And that was very important. So what this passage is saying to the early church is that Christ has joined you to himself. Notice to his body of flesh and blood. You are actually... In some way, physically, and it's hard for us to get into this imagery, but when we talk about Jesus acting, it's us acting. The same spirit, and this is New Testament right through, that was in Christ is in us. The same thing that animated Jesus animates us. The blood of Christ was shed in love, and that blood is our blood. This is who we are as human beings. It's basically giving a definition of what this new humanity is. People who recognize that they are a part of God's creation and are doing God's work 
physically here in the world, not out there mentally somewhere thinking about nice things, but actually going out those doors and doing the work of God with your bodies of flesh and blood because you are like Christ in the world. It's a very deep and profound understanding of humanity. This is in union with Christ Jesus. We are a part of Jesus' living presence in the world. Now, of course, usually when we hear this, when we think about Jesus, Jesus is sort of off there and a long time ago, and we think, oh, yes, we've got to be like him. And so we read the Bible and see what sort of things he did, and we think about him a lot, and then that's good. And they say, yeah, but that's, that's not what we're saying. It's not just about thinking about Jesus. It's about saying, I am Christ incarnate in me, in my body of flesh and blood. How did Jesus show his love for the world? By giving his life, by giving his blood, by shedding his blood, by allowing himself to give up what was most precious in love for the world. Now this takes away, I think, what often bothers Christians, and that is that we're, you know, we're asked to be like Jesus, and you shrug your shoulders and say, yeah, you know, perfect guy who lived 2,000 years ago, we're supposed to be like him, that's sort of a lost cause before we even start. You know, you're saying I'm going to go out and be exactly like Jesus? No, but it means in those moments of your life, when you're flesh and blood, when you, you as an individual, you as a community, go out and do something which shows that love of Christ for the world, suddenly you are the body of Christ. You are Christ alive today. So you can see this is a very modern and a very practical verse. The, the understanding here is not something that's distant and far away. We're not just pretending. I'm going to pretend I'm like Jesus. No. We're doing things which show who Jesus was. This is why Jesus tried to make it simple. Theologians have now spent 2,000 years trying to make it complicated, but Jesus was very clear. He said, I'm leaving you one rule. Can you remember one rule? I'm not giving you the Torah. I'm not telling you 366 things you have to do. I'm giving you one, just, just one thing. That's all. Love one another as I have loved you. So what we do as we go out into the world is say, all right, at this moment, right now, where can love be shown? Where can I be Christ-like? And by the way, it's interesting, at the end of that passage, you know, it says you are being built into. It's, It's a process. We're becoming in those moments in our lives. When we say, my body is the body of Christ, I am going to do something Christ-like now in my world. At that moment, the connection's there. The power's there. You can feel it. Martin Bell, in his book, The Way of the Wolf, wrote this. To live is to decide. It's all life is. It's one great stream of decisions. Coffee or no coffee. Cream or no cream. Sugar, no sugar. And from there on. To live is to decide. To risk being wrong, to bet your life. Life itself is inextricably bound to decision-making. It is not enough to be interested in this man, Jesus, or fascinated by him or drawn to him. Either we stand ready to commit our deaths to him or we don't. Jesus was willing to go to the edge. I'm going to give up some of the traditions of my own people. I'm going to break some of the rules of my own people in the name of love. I'm going to sacrifice myself, shed my blood. This is what love means, folks. This is the path you're doing. You decide or you don't. 
you come with me or go somewhere else. It's, it's rather simple. No one ever knows the Christ and then commits himself. Commitment is the one and only way by which we may know the Christ. Listen to that. Commitment is the one and only way by which we may know the Christ. How do I know Jesus? Now, you can read all about him. You can write essays on Jesus. You can come up with G- uh, Christian ethics in the 21st century. Or something. All those things are good. But the only way you actually know, the only way you actually feel, I am a part of Jesus, is to decide to do something in love. Usually, of course, we get it backwards. We say, well, first, I am going to go to theological college, and I'm going to read a lot of books, and I'm going to go to a lot of lectures, and I'm going to attend church every Sunday for the next 40 years, and maybe eventually I'll get to understand Jesus, and that'll make me a Christian. He's saying, no, no, no. First, you say, Jesus is about love, and today, right this afternoon, I'm going to go out something I'm going to risk, and love always involves risk, because you're putting out your hand there, and maybe the other person doesn't want it, or you're offering something, and maybe maybe it's not what you could have offered, but you're trying. I'm going to risk myself in the name of Christ. And when you do that, suddenly you go, yeah, this is what he was about. Albert Schweitzer was one of the first people to try to discover the historical Jesus. Not, not the Jesus the church wrote about, but you know who was the real person behind all these words and essays and gospels and epistles. And he ends his book in a very powerful way. And this was written about 150 years ago, or sooner, or later, because they didn't look up the date. To those who obey him, whether they be wise or simple, he will reveal himself in their toils, in the things they do, in life as it unfolds. The conflicts, the sufferings which they shall pass through in his fellowship. And as an ineffable mystery, they shall learn in their own experience who he is. Who is Jesus? I can tell you about him. You can study about him. You can certainly read books about him. But if you want to know him, You become a part of his body in the world. You walk out those doors and you love. You know, you've been waiting all week to send that letter to your sister-in-law who was just diagnosed with cancer. And you've been putting it off because you want to get the words right. You know, I'm thinking about that. I'm going to do something this afternoon, I think. No. Decide. Do it. Are they going to be the right words? You don't know. That's love. You're going to do your best. And in that moment... You are expressing the love of God. You are being Christ in the world. And this, this is who we are. This is what it's all about. Our unity does not come because we have the same theology or because we all understand Jesus in exactly the same way or because we all have the same background or because we all sing the same words to the same hymns. No. Our unity becomes, comes from the fact that we are in the very heart of our nature, united by Christ and called together to love the world. Here we find who we are as human beings. And for this, thanks be to God. Final hymn. They will know we are Christians.